welcome to another episode of Old School Guns. This is episode number 77, so double seven. Um, well, here we are, and we are the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. We don't pull any punches. We don't uh, try to hide or talk around things. So, consequently, uh, we do have a whole lot of things that are uh, worth talking about. The first one is... And everybody's kind of doing this. There, there was a website, you know, Gun Blasts, and it was founded by a man named Jeff Quinn, who I did not know, but I did read his things occasionally. Um, he essentially started doing this way back in the nascent days of the internet, actually. Uh, kind of one of the first bloggers, firearms bloggers, who would do reviews, honest reviews. Because everybody was tired with the BS gun magazines of every gun is the greatest. You know, go ahead and buy this. And, um, you know, who hasn't fallen victim to that? The reason that I have an AMT hardballer in my gun safe instead of a cold, gold cup is because I believed something I read in a gun magazine ages and ages and ages ago. Uh, going back to 1977. So... You know, the gun media then, the print gun media, had a lot of influence. And um, we'll get more to AMT later. Actually, it turns out to be an awesome gun. Um, but, you know, actually, it, it swayed me. I could have I gone either way. And uh, the resale value on a gold cup from that vintage is quite a bit higher than the AMT hardballer is today. But I'm not unhappy with the choice. But it was influenced by the print gun media. And uh, Quinn was one of these guys who said, hey, you know, a lot of this is BS. It's just marketing. When you buy a gun magazine, you buy marketing, you know. Um, they're not going to take one of their major advertisers' products and trash it or tell you even the truth about it, that, it, hey, it isn't worth it, or what the, even the potential shortcomings are. So he started a very kind of honest website. Uh, it was opinionated, you know, I mean, and, and it's about his likes and dislikes. He was not a guy, and I don't know him, so I, I, I don't, it, it appeared to me that he was a guy who liked very, very bread and butter, utilitarian, good quality guns, you know. Um, I always think when, that, that he, I think he had a uh, particular liking for a lot of Ruger's. You know, Ruger is a very sturdy, well-made, does what it's supposed to do gun. It doesn't look like a Colt Python because it's not supposed to. It's it's more function-oriented, and uh, I, I'm very impressed with that. I was actually very, very impressed with that. He, you know, good guns are good guns. You know, there are guns like the Ruger Blackhawk, very unassuming, but, man, they get the job done, and they last and last. So he is passed. Uh, it's a shame. It's a shame. I think a lot of people try to copy copy that, but I don't think they have his kind of honesty and his integrity. And, and whenever you're the first, you know, it's easy to be, it's easy to copy someone else, but it's tougher being the first. And he was definitely the first. And so we're seeing kind of the closing of an era just as when, Skeeter Skelton passed, Bill Jordan, Elmer Keith, you know, some of these great kind of gun writers going. We don't really have a lot of great gun writers or content creators today, but we did have, you know, some people who could really do what they wanted to do, and Jeff Quinn was a founding father of that. So he will be, he and his insight will be sorely missed. And getting to content creators, uh, I'm going to kind of stay away from some of the politics. It's awful easy to talk about, you know, hey, the mayor of Chicago looks like Beetlejuice, <laughs> you know, and, and acts, acts strangely, you know, prosecutors in St. Louis who, who, who look and act strangely, um, Joe Biden, who's a crazy old man, you know, it's, just, it's on and on, <laughs> and Dr. Fauci, who's another crazy old man. Uh, it's awful easy to, to, to go after these people, but we're going to kind of keep it a little bit more firearms focused, although the COVID thing will come in. I don't know if you've seen on the internet the latest in-range TV question and answer, and it used to be those were pretty good videos. I mean, they would have both Carsada and McCollum on there. They, they would both answer. They were, they were entertaining to watch. They're, they're opinionated and and as I've pointed out in the past, I think they're limited by the fact they have zero military experience. So when they make these 
pronouncements and conclusions um, without that kind of experience. I've, I've always found that to be a, a bit questionable. But uh, anyway, that's, be that as it may, I noticed that the in-range Q&As now are just Carsada, and I don't know if that's scheduling or if Ian McCollum is smart and distancing himself because, you know, frankly, I didn't like the woke business, you know, of not posting anything for a week so that I guess we could all reflect on injustice or whatever, whatever in range did during that was, was trying to do during that week. And now that he's gone into this thing where, um, he put some weird filter on, so it looks kind of like a cartoon and maybe, maybe that's somewhat appropriate. I don't know. Uh, but then he, he went into a couple times about the, the, the mask diatribe and, you know, frankly, I don't need a lecture from, from this guy on wearing a mask in public. I do wear a mask in public. Um, I do it for my own reasons, which are, um, I think that, um, you know, it, it, it could help. If it can help, that's fine. But I'm not a mask Nazi. I don't believe the mask really helps. It's not a respirator. So, you know, if somebody coughs in your face and they've got it, you're going to get it too. The mask isn't going to prevent it. If you have it and cough, yes, it can keep some of the droplets from going. And they've, they've got all the, the little diagrams and all these things that show you that. But, you know, where I don't want this to go, and the reason that I am kind of a mask rebel, and I don't believe they have a, a legal right to tell you to wear a mask, or force you to, is because there are people, and they are Democrats, who will have you wear the mask the rest of your freaking life. You will always have a mask. I mean, the next thing that's coming, and you can see this if you really look to the future, Let's just say they get a vaccine and COVID goes away. So by this time next year, COVID is gone. When the flu season approaches, there'll be people saying, you know, everybody should wear a mask because it is flu season. And although we don't have COVID, it'll help prevent the spread of the flu and, and on and on and on. So I think it's a, uh, um, I think it's, it's just an absolute outrage to be preachy about masks and not really look at where this is all going. They want to keep you in masks. There are politicians who have, they are drunk with power that they've been able to force people to do this. And, and it's part of what I call COVID theater, which is the ridiculousness like you could, <laughs> the little arrows in the supermarket. You can only go up this aisle one way. I always kind of deliberately go the other way just to see if anybody will say anything and nobody ever does. Um, you know, the different aisles are, you, you must stand six feet apart. Okay, that, that's all. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. But understand, it's not really helping. It's COVID theater. That's what it is. Same thing with, they've got bottles of Purell everywhere. Like you walk in and, and um, you do that. Washing your hands is a good thing. And I'm not, I'm not saying that using hand sanitizer is a bad thing. But face it, most places where you see it, it is COVID theater. Same thing with wiping down your, your shopping cart. Because you, know, you, might, you might grab a shopping cart that somebody had COVID and somehow it's going to live on the surface even though there's no real proof it does. And you might put your hands on the shopping cart and then stick them in your mouth and somehow transmit the COVID into yourself and get it. Um, you know, I'm just not going to fall for COVID theater. The masks are part of COVID theater. Yes, I mean, I, I think a lot of people feel more comfortable when they see everybody wearing a mask. And they feel a little better about going out into public. And that's all fine. But the diatribe that uh, he launched into was, was absolutely ridiculous. And actually, one of our questions is uh, uh, related to this same ridiculous Q&A. Um, another one was uh, that came up is the Forgotten Weapons AMT slash IAI 10mm long slide review. Uh, you know, this goes back to kind of something I mentioned in earlier podcasts that, you know, if you were a gun writer back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, the best thing you could do, if you were going to bash a weapon, you didn't bash a weapon that somebody might pay advertising for your magazine to advertise. You know, that's just business. That's the way it goes. 
Um, so what they would do is they would take things that were out of production. And in the 60s, it was the Luger. You know, the Luger was a piece of trash. It was junky. Same thing with the, uh, to a lesser degree, the Walther P-38, even though they were still kind of being made in Germany. And you could you could get an imported model here. Most of the ones around were the surplus ones, and nobody nobody really cared. So they would badmouth that. Um, you know, there were that's it was safe to badmouth those. It was safe. The next safest thing to badmouth were guns that were out, long out of production. And you could sit there and say, well, you know, they made, the company was really smart. They quit making these dogs back in the day. And it doesn't really matter what the, the model was. But, you know, you could dog on something like that. You didn't dog or say anything negative about the current products because you didn't want to risk the advertising. And Forgotten Weapons is the same way with this. They don't really, the advertising isn't that important. But, you know, they know if they dog out the AMT, IMI, long slide, 10 millimeter, then nobody's going to care because the company's long gone. And, and uh, you know, it, it went through a whole bunch of things. But back in the day, back in the day, uh, 10 millimeter was a hot ticket when it came out. The Bren 10 he had a big splash, even though it was ultimately unsuccessful. Uh, people wanted 10 millimeter guns. They thought they were very cool. We, that was that was in the Magnum era of revolvers. And if you could get something close to Magnum performance out of a semi-auto, a lot of people thought that was that was pretty cool. Um, they weren't really aware of that the trade-off would be recoil and wear on the gun. So one of the first guns to come out in 10 millimeter that was actually successful was the Colt Delta Elite. Good gun, a 1911 beefed up a little bit for the 10 millimeter cartridge good deal uh, it worked um, you can wear them out by shooting a lot you know there's no question about that but a good gun and now they're they're somewhat collectible um, you know and it's only was natural that other companies would would kind of come along but um, I think that the um, the AMT IAI the Galena they called it um, I think that was probably the first 10 millimeter long slide. As a matter of fact, I'm sure it was. And uh, that was one of the few 10 millimeter guns on the market. And for a, a first generation 10 millimeter gun, it was a good gun. I mean, having it in long slide helps dampen the recoil, helps maximize the use of the cartridge, makes it cool. You know, long slides are cool. Um, you know, I wish I had one. One of, my, one of the things I'd love to have would be a long slide gun of some kind, just 45 or 10 millimeter. I just think they're cool. And a few of them are being made now. Um, I'd have to look them up, but there are a few that are being made. And the, uh, but they were very cool guns. And of course, you know, the sub, the subtitle to the episode is, well, if it works, you know, the, the AMT 10 millimeter Galena, if it works. And the answer, the answer is the, the guns do work. Um, I always go back to something that I have mentioned in other podcasts, that if you want a gun to fail, it will fail. If you want a gun to jam, it will jam. And I've got all kinds of, of examples of, you know, that. Because people will either deliberately or subconsciously sabotage the gun so they can say it's a piece of junk. And that's what they did here. Uh, there were a couple of malfunctions. He, first he said it. It ran fine. Then there were a couple of malfunctions. Uh, I would say that, you know, one of the things you have to do is you have to look at the magazines very carefully. I would have used, or at least had available, um, another magazine for a 1911-style 10mm, which will interchange and work just fine in the in, in the AMT gun. I would have used, I would have had other that other magazines, and I would have had maybe some other ammunition. Um, what I saw there was the only malfunction I really saw that was that was uh, pronounced was looks like it needed a new extractor, and because the gun's thirty years old, you know you don't know what it's been through before it it gets tested in in forgotten weapons. Uh, this is I kind of put this video. I was very disappointed in it. I kind of put it in the same place where I put his his uh, you know the. DSA Israeli light barrel FNFAL video, you know, where he couldn't seem to get it adjusted right, yet 
they profess to be experts in everything. So, um, you know, so very disappointing. I mean, very, very disappointing. It's like, you know, you want to just make fun of a gun that's not around anymore. I'll, I'll tell you, I think it's, I think it's a shame that we don't have AMT guns anymore because they were making the original auto mags, very, very cool guns. Uh, they were also, you know, they were kind of absorbed by high standard, which, you know, high standard guns are great guns. They are great guns. And they were actually making an AR-15, which I never examined. And unfortunately, it was kind of a high-end AR-15. And, and they didn't sell because who needs a $1,500 AR-15 when I can buy a $600 AR-15, which is functionally just as good. So it's a, um, it's a real shame that, that AMT slash IMI slash High Standard, that they're gone now. That was a great company, and they made great guns. They really did. Uh, high Standard, Supermatic, Citation, and, and Trophy, great target pistols. Great target pistols. Uh, the AMT Hardballer, they came out with, a, they had a commander size, and, it, and this was back in the day where stainless steel guns were rare. Smith & Wesson had a few revolvers, but stainless steel guns were rare, and uh, I really liked a stainless steel 1911. I carried that AMT, you know, on my some of my forays into the uh, uh, desert in Nevada. I carried it in uh, mountains. I carried it, uh, you know, kind of the hills and prairies near Wyoming. I took that gun everywhere, and I loved it. It was easy to clean, easy to keep going, and it really has never failed. I mean, it's. I did have the sights replaced. I had one of the early models, had the sights replaced, and... Uh, you know, but other than that, it's. Uh, I did also put in an arched mainspring housing. I, I don't really care for the flat one that much, especially at that time. So I got I got a really good gun, and it's got a good trigger. It's accurate. It's fun. It just you can haul it around in holsters, and you're not going to wear the bluing off it. And it was a great gun, and it is a, still a great gun. And I think it it was the ancestor to all the the nice stainless steel uh, kind of guns that we have have today. Um, there was some reported problems with galling. I've never seen it. That's because the, the two steels together would kind of, kind of wear on each other. But, you know, they had a very, very, uh, thorough, uh, way that you used lithium grease and you, you, um, greased it up and it was never a problem. And now they have stainless steel gun lube, which, um, you know, is absolutely, good stuff. I mean, you put it on there. It's like anything else. You find out that you cannot really over lubricate a gun. So you keep it lubricated with that good kind of lube and, and there's no, there's no galling problem. It's a great gun and uh, doesn't get the credit it deserves today. Uh, really doesn't. But, um, yeah, forgotten weapons. They didn't let me down. They just repeated the same old internet kind of gun magazine crap about AMT and IAI. Pretty disappointing. Pretty disappointing. Well, let's go to something a lot more interesting than uh, bogus YouTube content, which is, uh, there's a couple of articles out, but the National Shooting Sports Foundation, NSSF, NSSF. Uh, they they kind of keep track. I guess they get it through government sources or whatever, but they keep track of what's sold. And so they have their list of the top selling guns in the United States for the first half of 2020. It's a very, very interesting list. Now, they break it down. It's actually four lists. No. It's actually more than that. Well, I guess it's, yeah, well, it's more than that. Uh, they have... <clears throat> They have revolvers and semi-autos for handguns. And under each of those is purchased by under 50 years old and over 50 years old. And they do the same thing for rifles. They have semi-automatic. Then they have the other manual-operated actions over 50. So I guess that's... Uh, I can't do the math real quick, but I guess that's eight lists total. So uh, the, the good part is the lists aren't that different. The lists just aren't that different. I don't know why they would break it down by age, but... You know, that's it's, uh, very interesting. We'll just go through the highlights. Um, top 10 revolvers under age 50. And this is Ruger Wrangler. Very big surprise. Big surprise. Uh, 
And I hate to say that I've kind of predicted this, but if you have nothing, a, a revolver in twenty two long rifle with a brick of ammunition is comforting to have. If you have nothing else, that is a good gun to have. And the Ruger Wrangler, I actually haven't looked at one in person. Uh, I'm not really in the market or really that's not something I'm, I'm going after. But it looks like a really nice gun. And they started out, I think, around 250 bucks. Now I think they're sub 200 bucks if you shop around, you know, the street, the street price. And uh, a very, very good gun. Ruger makes good products, and this is a good little product. And like I said, you have that and 500 rounds of hollow point ammunition. And, you know, you go from defenseless to having some defense. And as I said in the last thing, hey, it's nothing Dirty Harry's going to carry, but it's a whole lot better than nothing. The uh, next one is Colt Python. No surprise, that's that's the new hotness. Everybody wants it, in the revolver world especially. Next, Smith & Wesson 642. Hey, concealable gun. And, you know, basically a solid, you know, dependable, very traditional gun. Uh, the 642 has got the internal hammer, double action only. Um, really good gun. Really good gun, but that's very defensive mine. The next one is, is kind of strange to me. It's the Heritage Arms Rough Rider Revolver Rifle. And I don't really think they make a revolver rifle. I And this is a handgun list, but this is what they put out. I'm, I'm not inserting anything. So Heritage Arms Rough Rider, and then later on down, it's Heritage Arms Rough Rider. So it's actually on the list twice. So, so much for having an editor. Heritage Arms Rough Rider, uh, I've actually seen them. I mean, you know, they're fine. For the money you pay for them, which is 100 to 150 bucks. Um, again, that with a brick of ammo gives you something. It gives you something. I don't think the people buying these or the Ruger Wrangler are buying them because they're all of a sudden they're they're <laughs> they're going back to nature and walking around in the woods and need a trail gun, which is really what you the traditional role you would think of a single action twenty two long rifle. Given the other guns on the list, I think that people are buying it because a it's available and it provides them at least some defense. Next is Ruger GP one hundred. No surprise. Next one is a surprise. Smith & Wesson 629. Big, good revolver. Not usually a first gun chosen by people. So, um, Pete, that's, that's an interesting uh, one. It's about in the middle of the list. Next is a Ruger Blackhawk. Uh, that should be no surprise to anyone. You can get a Ruger Blackhawk. Uh, the convertible cylinder models are very, very nice. Very, very good, very, very good guns. Uh, then we hit the Heritage again, and then we hit the uh, Taurus 856, concealable, 38 special snubby, you know, kind of low purchase price, not a bad deal. And the bottom is the Smith & Wesson 686 Plus. Now that's under 50, and that's revolvers. That's, you think about people under 50, and you don't think that that's a big revolver market, but evidently it is. And you know the... Um, the only difference between the revolvers for under 50 and over 50 is a little bit of the positioning is different. Um, the Colt King Cobra came in on uh, the list. And so that's that's about the only difference. It bumped out one of the Heritage Arms revolvers. So I think this is actually a better list. So this list is about the same. Uh, top 10 semi-auto pistols. Semi-auto pistols under age 50. Sig Sauer P320. Hey, that's part of the new hotness. Um, Glock 19, part of the hotness. Springfield Hellcat, part of the hotness. Sig Sauer P365. Nitron Micro Compact. And then we start getting into some surprises. Beretta M9A3. You know, the Beretta, the one that everybody talks smack about, nobody really liked it as a service pistol. I mean, it was it was tolerated, but it wasn't really loved as a, as a U.S. military service pistol. And really not too many police use it anymore. But, hey, it's there. It's on the top ten list right in the middle. And at the bottom of the list is the 92FS, which the fact that it's on the top ten list at all is very surprising to me. Um, 
But underneath that, we got Smith & Wesson MP9 Shield, Springfield XDM, Glock 19. So Glock 19 is on there twice, as just a Glock 19 and then the Gen 4. Glock 43, and then rounding out the list, Beretta 92 FS. Interesting. Very interesting. What is also interesting to me is unlike the revolvers, you don't really see any twenty-two long rifle caliber guns on the semi-automatic list. That's interesting. That's very interesting. I think if they're going to go twenty-two long rifle, I think they just basically say, I'm just going to go with the revolver, which is a lot less expensive. That must be the uh, that must be the theory. I would have expected to see to have seen a Ruger, um, you know, twenty two automatic on that list. Okay, now we get back to um, top ten semi automatic rifles under age fifty. Ruger AR five five six, Keltec sub two thousand, Smith and Wesson MP fifteen, MP fifteen Sport, Smith and Wesson MP fifteen Sport two. They actually have that on there twice. I don't know who... The people who put this list together, just who, whoever was the editor didn't even realize that... Okay, Springfield Saint, Diamondback Arms, DB-15, Ruger 10-22, and then we have Ruger PC Carbine, and then you have Ruger 10-22 Carbine, you know. So, ridiculously, this is actually a top eight list because two of the, two of the guns are the same. And actually, actually, if you can, if you count Smith and Wesson MP15, Smith and Wesson, Smith and Wesson MP15 Sport 2, SNW MP15 Sport 2, if you if you count those as the same gun, it's it's really a top seven list, and then you have the uh, uh, Ruger 10-22 on there, so it's it's really a, a um, you know a top eight list or a top top seven list or something, so. Uh, anyway, not a, not a lot of surprises there. Uh, the Keltec Sub 2000 that kind of surprises me. Keltec doesn't have a great reputation, but that's always been kind of an innovative, kind of cool little gun that uh, folds in half and is you know again people aren't buying these because they're they're hitting the hiking trails this summer. They're buying it for defense. And you look, this is a very defense oriented thing. I would say, especially the Ruger PC carbine is. The 1022s, I think, I think you know. Again, you get that 25. If if you're in a jurisdiction in free America that allows it, that 25 round magazine, and there's some good aftermarket magazines. I forget the the uh, best one, but there's some there's some good aftermarket magazines. Hey, you got a 25 round capacity, which is a good deal. So those are all clearly. I wouldn't say they're so much hunting oriented, but they're defense oriented. Springfield Saint is a, an AR pistol. Well, I think they do have a rifle version of that, but I always thought it was a pistol with a uh, a brace. So they sh that should be under the under the pistol thing. But maybe there is a long rifle version of the Springfield Saint. I don't know. Doesn't really interest me. So uh, going back there, Diamondback Arms DB15. Yeah, we we got all that. And again, over fifty, it's essentially the same. It's essentially the same. The The order is a little bit different. Uh, the funny that the top of the list, Ruger AR-556, very good gun. You know, very practical, not fancy, doesn't doesn't have a whole lot of, um, you know, ex-Delta Force dudes, you know, recommending it or all that. But I guarantee it's probably very, very reliable and very well made. And people are seeing the value in that gun, and it tops both lists. So... Those are those are kind of the lists out there, and they're very very interesting. They're very very interesting. It's obviously the times have uh, have basically told people get get a hold of defensive uh, firearms. Now the problem with all this, the problem with all this is now you got to find ammo to shoot in it, and that's going to be. You know, you can buy all the guns you want, but if you don't have bullets, you're in trouble. And uh, uh, so that's that's where this is. But that's a very interesting thing to know of what's really selling. So uh, if you're a person who's selling guns, that's that's what the hottest thing in the market is. 
I would also say, though, that, um, you know, I really think that uh, a lot of people are also buying non-traditional guns. I think that new Marlin Dark series with the paracord wrapped around the, the big loop lever and everything finished in in, in black and everything, uh, that, that to me is clearly a tactical type of lever action. It's really not made... It's fine for hunting, but it's got the rail on top so that it can take any kind of modern combat optic. I think that that is very much very very much a um, tactical defense oriented rifle that you could buy anywhere but especially in states that restrict the AR-15 so uh, very very interesting very interesting if you hit Google you can uh, see the report in its entirety they also break down you know bolt action rifles and lever action rifles and you know, not surprisingly, California comes up very high on lever-action rifles because you can't buy semi-automatics, and it's not on the semi-automatic list at all because even though you can buy some semi-automatics in California, you can't buy a whole lot. So anyway, that's, uh, that's the report. Very interesting and uh, kind, of, kind of neat to know. The, the top state, and I think for everything, was Texas. So don't mess with Texas. Okay, now we're going to move to my favorite part of the program, which is questions and answers. And we've got some interesting ones today that were sent in. Uh, some of them have been kind of touched on already, but we'll, we'll touch on them again. Okay, so the first question is, what firearms podcasts do you listen to? I think I was also asked this a while back, like maybe 40 episodes ago or something. The, the answer is there's not a lot that I listen to. Uh, I kind of like, well, the two that I listen to that I enjoy, really enjoy. One is called the John 1911 Podcast, and if you just Google that, John 1911, all one one word, if you will, podcast, it'll it'll pop up. And it's got a couple guys on there, I think former police and, and a few things. They got a lot of really good insights and things and it's they're fun to listen to it's like three guys on there they're a lot of fun to listen to so uh, i think that's a good podcast i look forward to that one the other is firearms chat which is run by uh, uh some folks down in uh, well i think one's in ohio and the other's in arizona and they're, they're kind of a little bit older and they have um, they have some health issues so they don't you know routinely uh they're not they do like one podcast a month they try to do one every every week or two weeks but they um, they do have some challenges so they don't always get around to that and it's not so much that their information is all that great it's good information but but it's it's certainly not perfect like everyone's um, but they're just two fun guys to listen to kind of common sense it's nice listening to people who who can see through some of the BS and that's really what I look for I uh, do do I get a lot of technical material out of those no i i also was listening to one the reloading podcast you know and it was pretty good for a few episodes the latest one just kind of it's just like they just turned on a microphone and phone in a room and you know some people speak up some people don't it's not really um the, the content was really dragging so i don't know what the deal with all that was but anyway that's not the uh um that's not the greatest, but it's, again, something different to listen to. So I just kind of go through the list. I used to kind of enjoy This Week in Guns. It was a 2A kind of centric. And they had a lot of people on there. It was pretty good, but uh, the, in May they just stopped making them, and I don't know whatever happened to them since. So I, I really like, what I like about podcasts are you, you get some unvarnished, untainted opinions. You know, you can come out and say that the, some of this stuff you see is just bull, and that, that's nice. I feel it's a much more honest kind of grassroots, more real than the stuff you get in, you know, certainly over the uh, uh, the YouTube deal and all the rest of that. And, and you know, the people are kind of more shooters in the podcasts. I, I, again, I have a problem with 
and I'll say it out, CNR Arsenal, um, you know, they, they make a lot of conclusions and they, they, they set themselves up at experts in something that they have no practical experience in, other than making, you know, YouTube-type videos. So, you know, hey, have a, have a great day. Um, a lot of their stuff, I thought the Project Lightning they did was ridiculous. And, uh, you know, they drew a lot of the wrong conclusions. And, you know, when I see these, these people waddling around with, <laughs> with these guns go, trying to tell me that they're experts, I'm, I'm not real sure about that. So getting back to podcasts, though, I like podcasts. I think they're cool. And uh, I do listen to a few now and then, but there's very few that I listen to routinely. So that's the answer to that. Okay, should I take a class in force-on-force training? Well, I'm not here to tell people what they should or should not take a class in. My viewpoint is I would be extremely careful signing up for force-on-force training. And the reason I say that is a lot of these guys like to use actual weapons that have simunitions or or these um, these kind of... I don't really want to call them paintball, but they're, they're marker rounds that they fire through actual weapons. So you actually, you know, learn how to use your actual weapon. That's In theory, that's all good. In practicality, you have to be exceptionally careful that no live ammunition gets mixed in. And while that sounds like a complete no-brainer, I, I can tell you that I, I was stationed out at a place called the National Training Center for three years. And I was an observer controller, which meant we ran the exercise. And to digress very, very quickly, a large unit would come in. They would do what's known as force-on-force training, which was in the simulators they had there were blanks and laser projectors. So it was kind of like a big game of laser tag in some ways. Um, And it was the multiple integrated laser engagement system, known as MILES. Multiple Integrated Laser Engagement System. I don't know if they still use that or not. I mean, it's it's pretty old technology. It goes back to the 80s. But I think they've updated it and still still use it. But in the, the, the crux of this is, in the middle of the exercise, they would stop, they would refit, and they would go through a live-fire exercise. Now, after the live-fire exercise, they returned to force-on-force. Force. So one of the big deals was making sure that no live-fire ammunition got back into force on force and let me tell you something there were some seriously close calls with a live tank round you know in a tank that didn't get checked and it goes back out to force on force and you know fortunately they opened the breach and they go oh my god there's a live round in here if they had because there was a an opposing force out there another group of u.s soldiers as an opposing force you know you know yeah you're shooting the lasers and the blanks at them is one thing, but you don't want to shoot live rounds at them because they're they're our guys. You know they're they're out they're helping us train. So, as bad as the big weapon systems were, the small small arms were just as bad. Now they never issued pistol ammo, but rifle ammo was everywhere, and you had to literally shake down and check these these soldiers out. And I never saw a single exercise where we didn't find live rounds that were headed back into force on force. Uh, Not a single time. And uh, I got a a steak dinner. One of my friends who was a commander of a headquarters company, was. uh, he said, you won't find any live rounds in my troops. And I said, I I bet you steak dinner I do. And he said, you're on, you're on, man. And uh, within five minutes I'd found live rounds. Now, and granted, he had done a very, very good job. He did a great job, as a matter of fact. And uh, I told him, I said, you did an outstanding job, but there's always something that slips through. That's why we check these over and over and over and over again. And the same thing has happened. I think last December there was a, you know, people playing force on force, and all of a sudden a live round gets in, somebody gets shot in the neck, and I don't know the specifics of it, but the bottom line is when you're using the same weapon but you're using a, lethal and non-lethal ammunition in it in a course um, to me the risk is just too great I mean it's just too great that something will go wrong 
some shortcut will be taken, something will go wrong. And space it, some of these trainers have got a pretty sketchy reputation for safety anyway. And uh, you see these guys on the on YouTube, you know, big mouths who talk about how high speed and how great they are. But, you know, you look at that, uh, it's never worth maiming or killing someone for the sake of training. Safety is... When you're a younger guy, you always say, man, I want to do things that are more daring and, and more realistic. But then you, you kind of realize that, hey, you know, training and what you get out of it are more important doing it in a safe manner than it is, you know, doing it in kind of a wild man way and, and uh, maybe something happens, maybe it doesn't. Being careful and being safe is one of the things you learn. And actually, it works the same way on operations, too. Uh, people who disregard safety wouldn't last very long in an operational environment. Those are those are very heavily, um, safety is very heavily stressed because you don't want to shoot one of your teammates. You don't want to hurt or maim or destroy something that you don't, that is not an intended target. So safety is a big deal, and that's, that's one of the things. I would never... It, the only force-on-force force training I would go to is if they use paintball guns, which obviously cannot handle any kind of lethal ammunition. And if you want to learn tactics doing that, that's fine. I would also say that there's not a whole lot of individual tactics you're going to learn. A lot of that force-on-force force is really uh, more collective training to, you know, maybe a police SWAT team, maybe some sort of a small team that, that is going to... Uh, um, you know, do uh, perform a particular mission. Um, that's where that's where force on force comes in. Single man force on force training. I don't know has a whole lot of value, and I'm sure that they would all argue that it does. But I think learning to handle your weapon safely and going through the regiment of marksmanship and everything else for an armed citizen is is enough. I don't think an armed citizen needs needs the kind of training that uh, uh, force on force would would offer the um, the cold fact is most people who handle guns in the United States have minimal training hunter safety training uh, maybe just uh, some some training through formalized marksmanship programs and I said one of the ways to learn a pistol is to shoot bullseye pistol because it will make you accountable for every shot. It instills a lot of good traits. Now, is it combat training? No. But it's basic marksman training. You know, those old guys knew. Keith, Jordan, Askins, all those guys, really kind of skeleton. All those guys knew. And I, I'm not really sure about Keith. I don't know that he participated in a lot of formal marksmanship stuff. But the other guys certainly did, as have others. And uh, when you see, you know, they've got the big board of all the marksmanship medals they won in police or, or military competitions or something. Uh, you know, there is a very much uh, a value to formal target training. And people will, people will say, oh, God, it's square range training. It's, you know, it's terrible. You're not moving. You're not doing this or that. Well, you are controlling your weapon, and what's more important is you're learning characteristics of a weapon. So it doesn't matter if you're shooting a Ruger target pistol or your favorite combat Glock. You know, there's a lot of mechanics that are the same. We found out, one of the things we found out in the military was a guy who was a good shot was really a pretty good shot with whatever weapon you gave him because the fundamentals of marksmanship translate they can translate from everything from an M16 rifle to a, and they don't use it anymore, but the old M47 Dragon missile about, you know, follow-through, sighting, and, and a lot of things are very, very transferable. They're good skills. They're transferable. That's why we want our military to shoot a lot, because even if you're used to shooting a rifle a lot, um, It'll translate over when you're shooting a machine gun. It'll translate over when you're shooting something else. Even even the uh, uh, anti-tank type weapons like uh, um, AT4s and M72A2s and some of these other you know little portable anti-tank rockets that, that 
that uh, we use. All that stuff will translate. So if you understand shooting and you, you're a good shot, now, will an M16 rifle translate over into a Abrams main tank gun? Not directly, but a lot of the theories are, and things are going to be the same. So it does help. It does help. And those guys knew. Those guys I mentioned before knew. And they all participated in a lot of formal um, target competitions. I mean, if you want to learn how to shoot a rifle, you go to NRA High Power and shoot service rifle. You will learn the ins and outs of that rifle much better than, than prancing around and doing some things that are that are different. I mean, you will you will really learn the ins and outs of that rifle, how to adjust the sights. You will learn the fundamentals of marksmanship. And if you're anywhere nearly successful at it, you will also learn that, you know, when you make a bad shot, when it's on paper, you are accountable for it. It's not like the, um, the YouTube videos where, hey, you see the dust in the background, but the guy's got the next shot and he rings the steel. Uh, the steel is very forgiving compared to a paper target where... Um, you know your score is is there and it and it doesn't change so and it's it's basically recorded so uh, that is what i would do in lieu of force on force training if you have to do force on force training do it in a paintball type environment um, there you go okay now here's here's something that reaches back and here's the question. I just saw the in-range Q&A where the CZ-52 and the M1 carbine are the worst weapons. They were on a worst weapons list, I guess. What do you think? Well, I, I don't know what to think. I mean, you can't tell somebody what they like and what they don't like. So when somebody says, what do you... And you can't tell them what to think. So if you think that something's bad, then it's it's bad to you. And if you want to put that out, that's that's all fine. Uh, to give it some context, um, I think the CZ-52, it is not a modern gun. It does not have a lot of the positive attributes of a more modern design. We're talking about something that was designed like 1950. When did they put it in production? Maybe 52. Maybe I think that's why they call it the CZ-52. So that was, I don't know, doing math, wasn't that like 68 years ago? So we're talking a 70-year-old design. And it was, it was very innovative at the time. As a matter of fact, um, up until the importations and kind of the end of the Cold War, they were a very sought-after, high-end, and very, very scarce collectible um, because they were they were considered very very unique, and uh, they had the roller lock kind of uh, system, and and it's a very very cool gun in many ways. But it is not a gun that competes well with modern high capacity nine millimeter guns. Just doesn't. So, I mean, if you think it's crappy because of that, well, then there are a lot of crappy guns in the world because anything that's over. 30 years old is going to be crappy. So there you go. I, I actually think CZ-52 is cool. They they sold them for years for bargain basement prices. I mean, just, it, it was amazing to me how inexpensive they were for a long time. And, um, you know, it's, it's a very cool gun. The only weakness that I think the gun has is people have reported that if you dry fire it a lot, you can break the original firing pins. And there's somebody who makes a, a titanium or stronger steel pin that firing pin that you replace it with, and then that doesn't seem to be a problem anymore. Um, but other than that, I think that I think they're very cool. I mean, is it something that I would take to go fight ISIS with? Well, <laughs> only if I had nothing else. Uh, I would take it over a Heritage Rough Rider, but um, you know, and and that's that's another thing too. If if Somebody bought one back in the 90s, and that's one of the, that's the only handgun you have, and you've got some of the, the boxes of ammo for it. I mean, it's, it's better than nothing. It's better than nothing. I, I found the problem with all the Tokarev um, caliber guns, the 762 uh, by 25 Tokarev, the problem with all those guns are is that most of the, not most, some of the surplus ammo that came in is super crappy. So... You know, you don't really get the benefit of a great round. They, they did, for a while, 
there were some manufacturers making some more modern stuff, and that that performed better. But it's it's a loud. It's it's not a it's not around that people have a lot of uh, pleasure shooting. It's got a loud crack. It's got some recoil to it. It's but it's it was very innovative and a very cool gun. So um, I certainly wouldn't crap on it. I do. I think it's 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 the most modern thing and greatest thing since sliced bread. No, but you know at the time it was a very cool design and I really like it. I th I think it was uh, uh, I think they're just a lot of fun. So that's how that's what I think about those. As to the M1 carbine, uh, it goes back to my earlier comments. If you want a gun to fail, it will. So if you're one of these guys who hates the M1 carbine and want it to fail, it will. I, I will. I have told people time and time again, the M1 carbine is an absolutely awesome personal defense weapon, and in fact, it's every bit as good today as it was when it was uh, introduced. I would say that it's got attributes that still make it very, very competitive. Um, that's why companies still make them. That's you know, there's a reason that the M1 carbine was, I think it was universal, then Plainfield, then Auto Ordnance, and now Inland. And Auto Ordnance and Inland are still being produced. There are companies that still produce M1 carbines because they're such great little guns and people are willing to pay up to well i think they they run in the 700 to a thousand dollar range depending on what what you do with them um uh some of the like the paratrooper model with the folding stock i mean th those are all good guns they are good and um now some of the early ones i think some of the plain fields and and uh universals i've heard they got sketchy reputations i've never actually dealt with them so i can't say and I don't really like repeating negative myths that are that I haven't had some experience with and then there were some GI rewelds that that uh, did have you know that did have the usual reweld two receivers you know that got somehow got torched in half and then got put back together some of those work out fine some of them don't so most of them actually work out fine then just some of them don't but it's handy it's reasonably powerful it is reasonably high capacity and you can even get a 30 round magazine the 15 rounders are really nice makes a nice compact package it has enough of a look to it it is intimidating you know i mean i just think that they're great little guns now the fact that carsada doesn't like them well you know who cares who who cares um he's a guy who never spent a day in uniform he's a guy who never spent any serious time with it other than dogging it out and if he picks one up to shoot it it will malfunction because it's it's almost like karma he will subconsciously or consciously do something that makes the rifle screw up so uh i don't really think that uh, he's he's the kind of guy who who can um talk about talk about guns he's also the guy who said semi-automatic thompsons are a cancer and they're terrible but yet he falls all over himself with these these, you know, semi-automatic um, FG-42s, you know, and he's willing to forgive the sins of those, but it, he doesn't like the semi-automatic Thompsons, which I think are far more cool than uh, than some, some weirdo, you know, thing from the Second World War that nobody really saw and knows what to do. Um, I think that the Thompson is much more cool. So... Anyway, that's that's kind of where where that all is. Uh, I just think that you know when these guys put out when they're dogging something, you gotta you gotta look. I mean, and I dog on things too. And here's 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 an example that people can disagree with. Uh, to show that I'm not a hypocrite, I will I will offer this up. I don't really care for high point weapons. I have admitted that I think the carbines appear to be reliable and serviceable. Um, their appearance is something that you know. Planet of the Apes, it's out there. It's it's up there with the uh, if 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 I was redoing Planet of the Apes, the uh, VZ fifty two rifle and the high point carbine would that's what the apes would be using. Man, there's no two ways about it. <laughs> but uh, I I fully say that that is a it is a viable decent gun. It's got its weaknesses. The high point pistol I see no value in. Um, so there you go. So. Those are ones that I, I don't see any 
any uh, real use for or any, any guns that I don't really uh, care for. And I, I don't go with the logic. To me, there's a logic break when somebody says, well, I'm going to use that for a truck gun or, you know, key, it's, it's a gun that I can always have in my vehicle or in my tackle box or something in case something goes down. Um, I would say that, that that's a logic break for me because you're basically saying I'm going to get a gun that's so cheap that I don't really care about. So if it gets stolen, I don't care about it. But it's also the gun that I'm most likely to wind up using because it's going to be on me if something bad happens. And I would say that any gun you keep in a tackle box is not going to do very well because tackle boxes get wet and they get all kinds of other stuff in there and there's fish bait and you know salmon eggs all kind of, all that kind of stuff getting rubbed all over your gun so I don't know that that's a conducive environment to keeping a gun in a a ready posture um, you know so if you're sitting on the creek side and all of a sudden a horde of bad people descend upon you you reach into your tackle box pull out your high point and defend yourself i i've always looked at the high point is why would i spend money on ammunition to run through an obviously inferior gun i mean you know that's that's it when i wanted a when i wanted a gun to carry around and take places with the possibility of having to use um i got a star bm i know bm's funny it means something different in english than it does in spanish obviously but uh, I got a Star BM, little 9mm, like a smaller, kind of like a 1911 commander size gun in 9mm. Very, very cool, very good, very reliable gun. Made to military standards. And really uh, done quite well. And, you know, up to a year ago, I was pleading with people, telling them, go buy one of these. You could get them sub 200 bucks. You know, they may not have the prettiest finish in the world. And if you're willing to pay, like... 240 or so you could get some that were very nice you know those guns were out there they're all gone now but um might find them on the secondary market though maybe somebody once got into one wants to get out of it but they're a good buy i would go with that much more than a high point that's my opinion um if high point sells millions of guns i notice they're not on the list of top 10 sellers so but you know i don't i don't have a gripe with them being in business and i do think the high point carbine um it's got a reputation for reliability. I do not know personally, but if it's a reliable gun, that's that's a big thing right there. So there you go. All right. And here we're coming up to our last question. What are some of the other unloved guns like the 9130 you talked about in the last podcast? Well, I appreciate the question. It's It's way too broad. I can think of just a couple of couple of examples um number one cz52 it's, it's basically unloved now now that they're not cheap anymore uh again i think that was a 60 75 dollar gun back in the 90s when they imported scads of them and people liked them people thought they were cool the same kind of prepper survivalist mode of this is really cheap and i can buy several of them so Therefore, they look for everything cool about it and think it's better than other things. Same thing happened with the uh, uh, the SKS is another one. The SKS when it, now people buy them for collectability, thinking, "Hey, this is kind of a cool, you know, intermediate step in between the Moisen the Gant ninety one thirty and the AK forty seven. But back in the day, people were buying, as I said in the last podcast, crates of them. Uh, because they would convince themselves, hey, this is better than the AK. This is this is a better gun. It's not. It's not at all. But they convinced themselves of that. But it's relatively unloved now. Nobody really pays a lot of attention to it unless somebody wants it for collectability. I still kind of like them. Um, I think the Rashid is a better looking 762 by 39 carbine. But but the SKS has got a certain. It's got that historical connection and panache that that uh, you know a lot of surplus guns have so it's it's but it's pretty much unloved at this point uh other guns that are unloved I, i'll tell you what well the walther p1 you know the they came in about 18 20 years ago you could buy them sub 200 bucks and people were just like poo poo you know the, people bought them now people poo poo them 
hey, it's got a heel magazine release, it's single stack, it's, you know, all this old technology. But it's a very cool gun, very nice gun. Um, it does also have that historical connection. You know, you see the, the P-38, World War II, the P-1, you kind of see that 1960s man from uncle, you know. So a very cool gun, but right now it's really kind of kind of unloved. I don't know that anybody really really pays much attention to it. So it's since it's not cheap anymore, it's it's pretty much unloved. Uh, same thing with there are, there are other guns that came in surplus, and you could. I think people still really like the Enfield, so I would say that it's still loved because you know we have a closer connection to the Anglo. Um, you know, government Anglo-England, you know, we have a, a closer connection with that. So I would say that that's pretty, still pretty much loved. Uh, so, you know, it's it's pretty much, pretty much there. I think something that's very unloved is the 308 conversion of the Moz 4956. I think everybody now realizes what a bad idea that was and that leaving it in the original caliber was the smart way to go. So the 308 one is probably very unloved. Whereas the 7.5 French version is still pretty pretty cool and, and a very nice, dependable gun. I guess I would round out the list by saying that the M1A M14 is unloved these days. Uh, millennials who never grew up with it crap on it. Um, people who've now grown up in high power for the last 20 or even years or even longer uh, have never used it. They're not, you know, they're not like me. I mean, I used it for a long period of time. So, you know, when they complain about the magazine uh, changes on it, I sit there and I go, what are, you, what are you talking about? It's easy. But then I realize, hey, I have a lot of experience with it that they don't. So first time, they're used to ARs. And so it's, it's really unloved. It, it really gets crapped on. And it was really a great rifle. It did everything exactly what it was supposed to do. And I would say that it did it actually better than the BM-59. I mean, it used, it saved weight, it saved parts. And I kind of like the BM-59, but that was kind of more of a conversion of the M1. Uh, successful and well done. And in actuality, for as long as we were going to keep the M14, it would have been a smarter way to go. But, um, you know, it's it was a very good rifle. It, the problem was, and even... Uh, there's a guy named General Devers who I mentioned before. He was a, a he headed uh, kind of the procurement and army forces testing, making sure that weapons were good and filled the uh, basically lived up to what we needed for World War II. And then after uh, that, he did, was done with that. He was actually like a corps commander over in the European theater at the, in the uh, you know post Normandy before the end of the war. So he was a guy who's pretty experienced with both sides, both the procurement, development, um, and, and making sure weapons were up to scratch. And he was also a guy who was a combat commander, commanded a large force in combat. And even he said, and now he was on the payroll of, of Armalite at the time, but even he said, uh, look, the M14 is it was obsolete the day it was the day it was adopted. I mean, um, that's just the way it was. And I've said, hey, it was designed for the 1945 battlefield, not the 1965 battlefield that it eventually wound up on. And that's why there, there was a change of direction and, you know, a change, accelerated technology and everything led us to the M16A1, which was a fantastic weapon for that particular environment. But the M14 lived on if you needed a powerful rifle, it was as good as anything else. As good as anything else. Traditional stock, you know, so it wasn't like the FAL. Have the, it, it didn't have the futuristic or more modern appearance of the FAL. But it, it, it did have, it was a solid, dependable, and it delivered. I mean, you can take, when you come down to iron sights, if you're just using iron sights, a, uh, an M14 will outshoot an FAL any day of the week, just any day of the week, both in accuracy and distance. So it also has an excellent trigger. You know, even the troopy versions have really what we would consider to be a very nice trigger. Now, it's not the Geisley trigger you can drop in an AR, but for a battle rifle 
mid-20th century, pretty darn good. Take, if you don't believe me, take out a G3 and take out an M14 and go fire them and see which one is, has got the better trigger pool. And you, I won't need to ask you. You will. You would probably come back and tell me immediately because it's a lot, lot different. So it's a it's a great rifle. Gets crapped on, uh, unjustifiably, um, but it is a great weapon. And you know it may do a resurgence. I kind of doubt it. I think the AR platform is just whether it's an AR10, AR15, or something, or if it's going to be something in between an AR15 style gun in uh, an intermediate different intermediate cartridge uh, i don't think the m14 is ever coming back but it has given us great service from from the late 1950s all the way up through the war on terror so good weapon does not deserve the bad reputation that the uh, some of the knuckleheads are trying to give it well that's it for this edition of old school guns the podcast that tells you like it is as always if you have a question comment or something you'd like me to address in the next podcast, you can leave the comment on Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N, which is our our primary uh, platform that we process these things on. You can always leave a comment there. Or you can email me at kbmakel at aol.com. But thank you for listening, and until next time, this is Old School Guns, out.